0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Dara and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in April in this cosmic diary. But before I get started, our regular listeners may notice that Patricia, the co-host of this podcast, can't be around to record with me, and that's due to the work and life adjustments that we've all been making to ensure that we stay safe and protect ourselves, along with our neighbours, as much as possible with the coronavirus outbreak. So a big shout out to Patricia. I can't wait for us to be back recording together. But in the meantime, whilst many of us are housebound, we'd still like to encourage people to take a look at the skies above them from wherever they are. Whether that's looking out from your windows, or stepping out onto your balcony, or even into your back garden. We've got coming up some of the highlights of the night sky over the next month, so have a listen and see what you're able to spot. So when looking up at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at a mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now Venus dominates the western evening sky this month, shining brightly after sunset and setting just after midnight. Venus is known as the morning star, when it's up in the sky before sunrise, and as the evening star, when it is visible in the sky just after sunset. On the night of April 3rd, the Pleiades star cluster will appear to have an extra cluster member, Venus will pass through the cluster on this night as it continues to make its way across the sky. Because Venus is an inner planet, as it orbits the Sun, Venus goes through phases just like our Moon does. Galileo was the first person to observe the phases of Venus and it was with these observations that came the first conclusive observational proof that the Sun and not the Earth was at the centre of our solar system. If you have a telescope, Point it at Venus this month and see if you can spot what phase Venus is in. The moon begins the month in its first quarter phase with full moon occurring on April 8th. In many cultures around the world, names are given to the full moons of each month. Native American tribes call the April full moon the pink moon because of the pink flowers called wild ground flocks which bloomed in early spring. This month's full moon will also be the second and the closest supermoon of the year, so depending on which naming convention you prefer, you could call it the Super Pink Moon, or the Pink Supermoon. If you're an early riser, you can use the moon to help you spot some of the planets. Before sunrise, on the morning of April 15th, the waning crescent moon will pass beneath Saturn and Jupiter, and on the morning of the 16th, it will pass beneath Mars. For those wanting to see the breathtaking craters on the Moon, but don't want to get up too early in the morning, the best time to view these features will be from a few days after New Moon, which falls on April 23rd, through to a few days after the Moon reaches its first quarter phase on April 30th. While the Plough, or the Big Dipper as it's known in the US, is used by many to find the North Star Polaris, it can also be used to help find the constellation Boetes. If you extend the curve of the handle of the plough through the night sky, you will end up at a bright orange star. This is the star Arcturus, the fourth brightest star in the night sky and the brightest star in Boates. Extending from Arcturus are five other stars that together with Arcturus form a distinctive kite shape in the night sky. Bordering Boates is the constellation Coma Berenices and although the constellation is faint, it is worth finding because it contains several deep sky objects that are worth looking at, including the Coma Star Cluster. This open cluster of stars is a perfect target for binoculars and contains around 45 stellar members. M53, a globular star cluster, is best suited for telescope observations and will appear as a hazy patch with a slight oval shape in small telescopes, while larger telescopes will reveal some of the cluster members. One of the oldest known meteor showers, the Lyrids Meteor Shower, will peak on the night of April 21st and 22nd. With the new moon occurring on April 23rd, the conditions will be perfect to see some meteors. A meteor shower occurs when the Earth passes through a stream of debris left behind by a comet. In the case of the Lyrids, the debris comes from Comet Thatcher, which last visited the inner solar system in 1861. The radiant of the meteor shower lies near the star Vega in the constellation of Lyra, which will be seen in the east and towards the southeast by the early hours of the 22nd. Around 15 to 20 meteors are expected per hour, and to increase your chances of seeing some meteors, find the clearest area you can, with the lowest view of the horizon, and look away from the radiant. By looking away from the radiant, the meteors will appear longer and more spectacular, Even though it's spring, remember to wrap up warm if you're going to spend some time outside scanning the skies for meteors. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. The blog provides a written account of the astro highlights mentioned in this podcast, along with snapshots of the sky to provide a visual aid. But for now, it's time for our Cosmic News. So welcome back to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. And in this part, we usually pick a news story that has fascinated us. So both myself and Patricia pick a recent uh, astronomy news story that has broken. Uh, We talk about those stories and then we get you to vote for your favourite on our Twitter poll that we set up at the beginning of each month. But this month, we're going to do something a little different. So this month I've picked just a single story, and I've picked a story all about our nearest neighbour in space, the Moon. And the poll this month will be a question, in fact a long debated question and something that's still being investigated, and that is, how did the Earth get its Moon? So in the remaining part of the podcast, we're going to explore some of the different ways that the Moon potentially could have formed. But before we look at the theories about how the Moon may have formed, we really need to understand What the Moon is like now so that we can try and trace back. So the Moon and Earth actually have nearly identical compositions. So research has shown this, things like studying the lunar or moon rocks brought back from the Apollo missions. And although the Moon and the Earth have nearly identical compositions, they do also have their differences. So the Moon and the Earth have a similar structure. They both have a core surrounded by a mantle. And then the outermost layer of both of these bodies is their crust. But the Moon has less iron in its core for its size compared to the amount of iron the Earth has. And it actually has less of the lighter elements, such as hydrogen. That's what's needed to produce water. And we know that the Moon doesn't have liquid water on its surface, perhaps a little bit of frozen water in the form of ice, hidden away in some of the craters, or even perhaps under the surface. Now there is a theory of how the Moon formed, and it's called the Giant Impact Theory. So about 4.5 billion years ago, an object roughly the size of Mars, which has been called Thea, collided or impacted with the Earth, material was flung out into space, and it coalesced and joined to eventually form the Moon that we have today. When the Moon formed, it would have gone into an orbit, scientists think, that would have put it just above the roach limit. So that's the minimum distance from the centre of a planet that a satellite would have to orbit at for it to not be broken apart by tidal forces. So if it was any closer than the roach limit to the Earth, then the Earth's gravitational pull, its tidal forces, its stretching and pulling, would have ripped the Moon apart. For the Earth, the Roche limit is about three times the radius of the Earth, and the Earth's radius about 6,000 kilometres, so that puts the Roche limit of the Earth at about 18,000 kilometres. So we know that the Moon would have had to form when it did beyond that distance from the centre of the Earth. But some of those differences that we talked about, so having less iron in the core, having fewer of those lighter elements like hydrogen on the Moon, the Giant Impact Theory can actually try and help explain why. So it's believed that the heavier elements like iron would have been found in the core of the Earth, and so they would have been maintained or retained on the Earth, whereas the heat created from the impact would have led to the ejection of material out into space. That heat would have boiled away some of those lighter elements like hydrogen, but then the rest of the material from the Earth and from Thea would have mixed, and that's what would have led to this nearly identical composition that we see of the Moon and Earth today. But the details of the giant impact theory are still blurry. There are a few observations that we're still struggling to explain. One of which is why the moon is more like the Earth than Theia, the object that collided into our planet in order to form our moon. So there are a few different theories about how our moon came to be. We're going to explore a few of them, but have a look at why some of them are actually uh, more popular than others and which one has become our leading theory. So number one is that our moon formed from the asteroid rubble or from colliding planetesimals. So planetesimals are like the the building blocks of planets themselves, the bits that came together to eventually form the planets. Perhaps the moon was produced from the debris when these planetesimals collided together to form the planets. But actually there's little evidence for this and it can't really explain the geochemical similarities, the reason why the moon and Earth have no nearly identical compositions. So that's not really a front runner. There's also perhaps a wilder theory, the idea that a natural nuclear explosion that was set up by a super concentration of radioactive elements may have provided a big enough kick to actually dislodge a moon-sized piece of rock off the earth and into orbit. Again, this is unlikely to have happened And that's because it's highly unlikely that you would have got a big super concentration of radioactive elements together enough to have provided that big enough kick to dislodge a piece of rock to form our moon. Perhaps another idea then is the idea of capture. So our moon may have been formed elsewhere, perhaps around another planet like Venus, but then it was grabbed by the Earth's gravitational pull. The problem with this theory, though, is that the Earth and Moon, again, have geochemical similarities. And this can really only be the case if they formed from the same pool of raw material. Either a collision, or from the same disk of material, or perhaps from each other. Somehow, to have that same composition, they have to have formed from the same pool of raw material. So capture's not really uh, one of the main contending ideas. But how about another one? So the idea of fission, or spinning off. So we know that fusion is the idea of bringing objects or reactants together and then forming into one. Fission is the opposite. Fission is the breaking apart of a material. So if the Earth was actually spinning fast enough in its early history... Perhaps it could have expelled a huge blob of molten rock into space. Now I'm sure we've all done it, but imagine yourself on a merry-go-round, and the faster and faster it spins, eventually you find yourself being flung off or flying off the merry-go-round itself. And this is a bit like what we're describing here, the Earth spinning incredibly quickly, that a piece of molten rock actually just got flung off into space. Many scientists, though, say that the Earth could never have been spinning fast enough to do this. If we work back from what we see of the Moon today, then actually when the Earth-Moon system first formed, for the Moon to be at that roach limit, that critical distance from the Earth, then it probably would have been spinning the Earth uh, every four to five hours. So the Earth would have had the length of a day being four or five hours long, much shorter than we have now. But actually, it would need to be spinning even quicker than that for a large enough blob of molten rock to be flung off the Earth's surface. Scientists predict that the Earth would need to spin once every one and a half hours for this to happen. So the length of a day would have to be one and a half hours long. And for anyone wondering why the length of our day still isn't four or five hours long, it's because once our moon formed, it acted like a, a braking mechanism. So the moon's gravitational pull on the Earth is actually slowing it down. So over time, over the millions, billions of years that the moon has existed around the Earth, it has slowly acted to slow the rotation of the Earth now roughly 24 hours long. One other thing that this fission or spinning-off theory can't explain is that the moon we see isn't orbiting in the Earth's equatorial plane. And if it was flung off, uh, this blob of molten rock, into space, then it actually would have meant that our moon should be orbiting in the Earth's equatorial plane. It isn't. It's actually tilted at about 5 degrees. So another idea, a theory as to how the moon formed, is something called Coformation: the idea that the Moon formed alongside the Earth from the same disk of gas and dust. Now this does account for the geochemical similarities between the Earth and the Moon, the reason we see that they have nearly identical compositions, but it can't explain the high angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system, or why the Moon has a much smaller iron core for its size compared to that of our planet. Now angular momentum is the momentum of a rotating or spinning object and momentum is like a measure of the amount of motion an object has. The angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system is actually really high compared to planets like Mars or Venus or even the Earth alone. So scientists believe that there must have been some event or some process like a collision that might have spun up the system relative to the other terrestrial planets. And so now our leading theory as to how the Moon formed is something known as the Giant Impact Theory. This idea that a Mars-sized object collided with the Earth and the material flung back out into space coalesced to form our Moon. Now this theory supports the similar geochemistry of the Earth and Moon, the orbit of the Moon around the Earth, and that it has a small iron core And that's because the mantles would have mixed as the two objects collided and the mantles would have been poor in iron because the iron would have already been buried quite deep within the cores and they wouldn't have mixed as much. Now, computer or numerical simulations actually show that Thea, this colliding body, its core may have coalesced with the Earth's core while it was molten, and it vaporized material from the mantles of both of these objects, which then formed an accretion disk in orbit around the Earth, from which the Moon formed. But because the Moon has quite a small amount of iron in its core, it suggests that the collision must have happened near the early part of the Earth's formation and that's why it doesn't have as much iron in its core for its size compared to the Earth. So going with the giant impact theory, the models that best fit all of the observations actually suggest that the moon should be made of approximately 80% of that material that originated from Thea, the colliding body. So that's the question, why is the moon instead suspiciously similar to the Earth? Could be one of two things. So number one, that perhaps these two objects, the colliding body Thea and Earth, had identical compositions to start with. But that's not really possible, because every body in the solar system is slightly different. The other idea is perhaps that the mixing upon the collision of these two objects was more thorough, but that would have required a bigger impact, and that simply doesn't fit the model that best fits all the observations. And that's where this new study comes in. It helps to resolve this dilemma. Now, the study was published in Nature Geoscience by the lead author, Eric Cano, from the University of New Mexico. And they basically show that the Earth and Moon aren't as similar as previously thought. Researchers looked with very high precision at the distribution of isotopes of oxygen in the rocks that were returned from Apollo astronauts. So studying these moon rocks, they were looking at the oxygen in them, but they were looking at the isotopes of oxygen. Now the isotope of an element is basically a different version of that element. So each individual element is determined by the number of protons it has in its nucleus. So carbon always has six protons, oxygen always has eight, but sometimes they have different numbers of neutrons within them. And depending on the number of neutrons they have, you can either get heavier or lighter isotopes. So the normal version of oxygen usually has 8 protons and 8 neutrons, so we might call that oxygen 16. But then you get some heavier and lighter isotopes of oxygen, so you might get something like oxygen 19. It has the same number of protons as a regular version, but just more neutrons instead. Now this study actually shows that there are small differences between the Earth and Moon's oxygen isotope compositions. Their profiles aren't actually identical as first thought. And actually these differences increase when you look at the rocks from the Moon's mantle instead. So rather than just looking at the crust where we already see slight differences in the number of oxygen isotopes between the Earth and the Moon... When we look at the mantle, which is the layer below the surface or the crust, it actually has more lighter oxygen isotopes on the moon compared to the Earth. And that's important because the crust is where the mixed debris would have really ended up, whereas the deep interior beneath in the mantle, those are the bits that would have more of that initial colliding object, there. So it seems that Thea and the Earth weren't actually identical, and the Moon and the Earth aren't identical either. But these results tell us a bit more. Because of gravity, you might expect there to be slightly more of the heavier isotopes closer to the Sun. The Sun's gravity would have probably pulled in more of those. So compared to the Earth, Thea, which actually has more lighter oxygen isotopes, must have actually formed further away from the sun compared to the earth. So it looks like we found another bit of evidence to support our leading theory, the idea that the moon formed from a giant impact with the earth. But actually, there are still many other observations to really try and explain, to conclusively prove that perhaps the moon was formed from a giant impact with the earth. And it's also really interesting to see that these Apollo mission samples, those lunar rocks brought back roughly 50 years ago, are still helping us to make scientific discoveries today. We're still using those samples from 50 years ago to help with our ideas now. In summary then, it seems that the great impact or the giant impact theory still remains our leading theory as to how the moon formed We now have a bit more evidence to support that theory. But actually, when we all look up at the moon in the night sky or even during the day, I'm sure we'll still be looking at it, wondering where did it really come from? Now that brings us to the end of our podcast for this month. But we usually end by having a look back at the poll for the previous month's stories. And last month, Patricia and I had talked about uh, the Spitzer space probe, which had ended its mission after 16 years of service. And then we also talked about the pale blue dot, the remastered image, and about Carl Sagan and his Achievements and his contributions to space and astronomy. So, we had 19 votes. 32% voted for the end of NASA's Spitzer Space mission, while the other 68% voted for the pale blue dot remastered image uh, and Carl Sagan. So, very well done to Patricia. I'm sending an air high five to you now. I think that brings us to 3 1, so she's definitely beating me to the polls. So for this month's poll, we're going to have some of the theories as to how the moon formed. Don't forget to cast your vote at the start of the month on our Twitter poll at ROG Astronomers. And with many of us housebound now, if you're looking for other things to cast your eyes and ears over, we have plenty of learning materials for you to use for free. Things for students, parents and teachers. We've got a number of other podcasts, short animated videos answering some of the biggest questions in space and other teaching and learning activities that can all be found online. They include things for early years foundation stage all the way up through the key stages and up to post-16 students too. So head to our website rmg.co.uk and search for learning at home and you'll find a whole host of things available from the Royal Observatory for you to make use of. And you may also want to keep updated with our hashtag Observatory Online series, which you'll find on our Twitter account, at ROG Astronomers. Throughout the week, we'll be posting several short videos answering some of your space questions and highlighting what to look out for in the night sky over that week. That's it for Look Up this month. Thanks for listening, do take care, happy stargazing, and see you all next month. <laughs>